Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome to Adding Context. Today I'm talking to Tom Lanfear. Tom, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Oh uh, yeah, hi. I'm, I'm uh, Tom Lanfear. I'm a respiratory therapist. Uh, I've been a respiratory therapist for about 30 years now, so I'm getting up there in age, but it's uh, kind of an interesting profession that I've been part of. <laughs> uh, definitely have, I'm sure you've seen a lot of advances in the time you've been doing this. Yeah, so when I, when I first got out, so I graduated, I guess, in uh, 19, I, I, it, it, the weird story is I, I started in college uh, as an accounting major and found out after about a semester that I did not want to be an accounting major. And uh, I was going to Temple University, and at the time uh, I wanted to switch. I decided I would go into physical therapy. That, that sounded like an interesting field. Started taking chemistry and, and all the uh, you know types of classes that you needed to, to be getting into that, that major. And I finished all my prerequisites and then found out that only – 50 students out of about 500 that applied got into the physical therapy program. So my grades were probably uh, around a 2.5 because I didn't really apply myself in school. And I ended up switching into a new field that they had at the time called exercise physiology. Uh, and now exercise physiologists, this day and age, are all over the place, but at that time they didn't even exist. So it was kind of a hybrid of a, of a uh, person who worked at a gym and a sports, uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, you know, guys that work on the sidelines for um, the, the different athletic teams, that trainers. kind of thing. Yeah, sports trainer, exactly. So it was sports medicine trainer, uh, all mixed together. Um, so I moved into that and graduated with my degree in that. Loved it, absolutely loved it, and got into working in a corporate fitness center and really enjoyed it. But at that time, it was paying, I think I made $16,000 a year or $17,000 a year full-time, which even back in 1985, uh, you know, 86, I guess 88 by the time I graduated, um, was not a lot of money. So decided I had to do something else and went to the library and pulled out a book on, on uh, healthcare, med, uh, you know, different professions in healthcare and flipped through the entire book. And, and I, I'll never forget that I got to the very last page and it said respiratory therapy. And I went, huh, what's that? I read it, and I said, okay, well, that sounds like something I could do. And then I ended up, uh, there was a hospital across the street from where I was working. So I went in and asked someone to, you know, where the respiratory therapy department was, and they sent me up there, and I walked in and said, I might be interested in doing this. There's somebody I could follow. And they said, sure. So I followed around someone and then uh, looked around at the local colleges and, and found one that had the program. And three weeks later, I was in the in the program taking the courses. Wow. Uh Two years after that, I was done, and that's 30 years later now. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I thought about getting into PT when I was at like 15 or so. I damaged my knee, and I was really interested and intrigued by the idea of helping people in that capacity. And my background is in EMS, and uh, so I'm all about helping people, and I thought that was a, another fun way to do it until I saw how much schooling was involved and. Then also heard how competitive it was. I actually just have a friend that was going to PT school for a few years ago, and him explaining exactly how competitive and how insane it is and how hard it is to get into a PT program, which is really odd um, because you know therapists are pretty pretty important people in the rehab facilities. Um, I, I'm kind of surprised that it's as competitive as it is. And it's, it's the, the interesting thing is now it's, it's so many years later, and, and now um, it, it's a master's degree and even Ph.D. level for, you know, just to get into to PT. So you, don't, you can't just work with a bachelor's degree. It's, it's a, you know, four years plus at a minimum um, to be a physical therapist anymore. Yeah. So it's, it's really grown a lot. Yeah, I think, it's, uh, I think he was getting ready to do like six years worth of schooling, and yeah. then it's a matter of getting into somewhere to get your, you know, your clinical time in and so it's pretty insane what do you think has been the greatest advance that you've seen in your 30 years for respiratory therapy for, specifically? For respiratory so it, it it's really I, I came in at the beginning of of 
what you would almost call the industrial revolution of, of respiratory <laughs> care and, and medicine because so it when I first started the, the ventilators that we had then were they literally looked like a, a washing machine they were that size um, there was no graphics you couldn't see anything on the screen it was just basically a bunch of knobs that you turned um, and then we would have a digital readout of the numbers so that has changed dramatically in the last 30 years. Now we have ventilators that are, you know, the size of a computer keyboard, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, wow. and they're less than a pound and, and they can do so much more than the best machines we had 30 years ago. Um, so you, you can literally ventilate a patient now and put it, put the ventilator itself in the bed with the patient as you're going on transport. Um, now we still have some of the bigger machines. Even our biggest machines now are, are a third the size and probably 20% of the weight of the ones that we used to have. Um, so that that in itself was a huge change. But the probably the most interesting one is when I first started, they had this machine called a pulse oximeter. And <laughs> you, most people, you're laughing because you know what that is, but yep. most people don't know what it is unless you've been in a hospital and, and you've had it on. But it's basically a little finger clip that goes on, and it puts a little red light through your through your finger, and... On the other side of, the, of your finger, there's a, another part of the clip, and that reads how much light goes through, and it's able to calculate how much oxygen is attached to the hemoglobin in your blood. Well, the, that little probe used to connect to this big machine that we would carry around, and if you're any Star Trek fans out there, it literally looked like a tricorder that Mr. Spock would walk around with. It was about <laughs> that size. So it was a good, you know, seven, eight inches long and you know, two, three inches thick, and it weighed, you know, three pounds, something like that. Now they have pulse oximeters that literally are the size of the clip that goes on your finger, and that's right. the entire machine. Um, so technology has dramatically changed. There's so much more accurate, um, you know, lightweight, all the, all that kind of stuff. It, it really is. And if you look in, in just in general, look at music. You know, we went from vinyl, you know, uh, records uh, up through the CDs you know, and DVDs that all came out, and now we're in the digital age, and that's really only happened in the last 30, 40 years, and that's exactly what's happened in healthcare to an even greater extent, and it's it's changing literally by the day. Yeah, that's that's kind of one thing I noticed with my college education is what I went for as I was learning it. By the time I was finishing up the class eight weeks later, it was if it hadn't already been antiquated by the time I started the class, it was antiquated by the time I finished the class. And yep. your point about you know, the size of ventilators 30 years ago to the, and pulse oxes 30 years ago compared to what they are now is kind of a testament to how quick and rapid technology is advancing. What do you think has been the most useful advanced uh, piece of equipment now? Hmm. Most useful? Uh, well, a Pulse ox is right up there because it gives you a, a constant readout of, of a patient's oxygen level, um, and and they're hooked up to every wherever you see an EKG machine in, in an ICU, and you, and you look up and you see the patient's uh, heart rate and rhythm, you can see the pulse ox reading right there with it. Um, so that gives you immediate feedback if there's a problem. So it really depends on different areas. I mean, in, in respiratory care, we deal with uh, not just ventilators and, and you know pulse oxes, and there's other equipment, but you know, the medications have changed dramatically. Um, so the, the, the meds that we gave 30 years ago can't come close to what we're giving now in terms of how effective they are, uh, side effects, all that kind of stuff have improved dramatically. But I, I think for just plain equipment, pulse ox would be one with, uh, you know, some of, some of the mechanical ventilators um, and their abilities uh, right behind it, if not, you know, 1A, 1B, that kind of thing. They go hand in hand. And you yeah. guys, um, predominantly, I'm guessing, treat patients in ICUs. Where else do you guys typically, or where would you typically find respiratory therapists? So if, if you were to look right now, there's probably about 140,000 therapists in the country, something like that. It, it kind of vacillates between 140, 150, something like that. Um, if you were to look at where most of the therapists work, it's starting to shift, but it's still primarily in, in acute care settings. So ICUs, obviously. Um, but the, the nice thing that I, that I really have enjoyed about respiratory versus some of the other healthcare, like we always get compared to nurses. When, pe when people say, you know, what do you do? And I say, I'm a respiratory therapist. They say, that was that like a nurse? 
And I say, sort of. Um, the difference is a, a nurse focuses on the entire body, and they have to be you know, familiar with everything because they're, they're responsible for the entire you know, body when they're taking care of a patient, whereas a therapist, we only focus on the heart and lungs. Um, another big difference is a nurse will be assigned a certain number of patients on a certain unit, whereas a respiratory therapist, you might be assigned to the emergency room uh, and to a medical floor and to a neurology floor. Um, you know, neurosurgery floor. So you're you're all over the hospital. You you might get called to the neonatal or pediatric units. So you're you're always moving around. Um, so that's one of the big draws. Uh, but but if outside of the hospital, we we work in rehab centers. We work in pulmonary uh, physician offices. You know, 30 years ago, that that was almost unheard of. There was one practice that I knew of in, in southeastern Pennsylvania where they had a respiratory therapist working in a doctor's office, and it was blowing everybody's mind. <laughs> and that was in uh, Lankanol Hospital. One of the practices there had respiratory therapists working. Now it's much more commonplace um, where you see therapists working in pulmonary doctor's offices doing you know, breathing tests and that kind of thing. Um, so it's starting to spread out. Uh, education, obviously, is, is a big thing. That, that's I'm doing that now. I'm, I've been teaching respiratory care for 15 years now. Um, so there's different areas that we, we've branched out into. Pulmonary rehabilitation centers. Um, you have physical re- rehab, but then there's pulmonary rehab where we're trying to get patients who've had lung transplants or patients with COPD or emphysema, things like that, where we're trying to get them stronger and get them breathing better so that they can you know, do more of their, their normal day-to-day care. Got it. The... Uh... For what I see as being kind of common sense from my background, how great are the differences between treating geriatric and pediatric patients? <laughs> Night and day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's about as, as wide as you can get. It's it, it's interesting when so a, a respiratory program um, is a minimum two years of school, so you have to get an associate's degree in it. And there are bachelor's level programs, and now there's even some. Um, beyond that that are starting to pop up. But most of the programs are two-year programs. And what I tell students is, okay, you, you get all this education and you come out of school and, and neonatal pediatrics are part of that, as are adult care all the way up to geriatric care. And it, it's very different. Um, if you graduate from a respiratory program and you go to work at, say, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, you're looking at at least six months of orientation because they basically have to train you how to take care of this age because the, the physiology is different, the, the um, different diseases they have and problems that they have are all different. It is just so different. And then when you get to the other end of the spectrum, you know, you don't, you don't see a lot of patients who are 35 or 40 years old with emphysema. Right. But you see a ton of them that are 60, 65, 70, 75 years old with it. You know, um, there are exceptions to that, but the, the vast majority. So if you work in a and a place where you have primarily uh, people that are age 65 and up, you're going to see different diseases and different conditions. So the care is different, um, but it's not that different from a, a normal adult. If you go down to pediatrics, it's, again, night and day difference. So there's kind of – are there people that actually, like, specialize in pediatric respiratory therapists and then Yeah, so they, there are. What, what typically happens is people come out of school and then they decide, you know, I want to work with babies or I want to work with kids – and they'll go to a center, and there's you know, people don't realize this, but most community hospitals don't have a dedicated pediatric or, or a neonatal floor. Uh, it's only the larger hospitals that, that have them, your university hospitals, that kind of thing. Um, there are a few exceptions to that, but for the most part, you can, you can take a kid to the ER, but they're typically not going to stay there if they're really sick and they need additional care other than just you know uh, stitches or something like that. Um, they're going to go to a, a children's hospital, Philadelphia, or in my area, up like Lehigh Valley, um, has a neonatal unit. Um, some, a couple of the city hospitals have neonatal units, that kind of thing. Um, so trying to, you know, making sure if you want to work in one of those areas, you're going to have to go to one of those hospitals. And then when you get there, not only do you, do you have to be kind of oriented for that four, six-month period of time and, and start working with these, but once you get better at it and you get good at it, there are uh, different specialty credentials that you can go take board exams for, and there's one for neonatal pediatrics. So if you want to be a neonatal, neonatal pediatric specialist, there's an exam you can go and take, and if you're smart enough and you can 
you know, get enough knowledge in you. And there, there are different textbooks and review books and that kind of thing. Um, if you have enough knowledge, you can go and take and pass that that uh, board exam, and then you'll get credentialed not only as a respiratory therapist, but a respiratory therapist, neonatal pediatric specialist. So the career uh, career trajectory is is pretty pretty vast as long as you put the time and effort into it. Uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of grown over the years. When I when I first came out, there were there were three less credentials than there are now. The, the, the newest one is the adult critical care uh, specialist, which is the ACCS credential. So you need to work as a respiratory therapist for at least a year before you can sit for the boards for that. Um, and then when you go and take it, it's a very difficult exam. It's, it's about half the questions are focused very much on intensive ICU respiratory care stuff. So mechanical ventilation, that kind of stuff is very heavy. And then the other half is what we would call more traditional ICU care. So things where nursing are, are typically taken care of or physicians are handling. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, like, vasopressor medications, uh, medications that push up your blood pressure or lower your blood pressure that typically a respiratory therapist wouldn't give. But we're dealing with those patients all the time. So there, there's a lot more medications that you have to kind of learn and know what's given when. It's it's kind of amazing how many there actually are out there. And uh, that's why whenever I look at docs, I, I just am amazed that they got through med school because <laughs> the amount of information they have to know and and keep current on just blows my mind. Yeah, the pharmacology, like you said before, it's it's growing leaps and bounds. And given the the current state of affairs globally, how how dramatically has the COVID epidemic pandemic uh, affected you and and respiratory therapy in general? So about uh, I guess it was what's it now three three years ago. Um, I, I had a uh, brain hemorrhage out of nowhere that, that just caught me off guard one night. I was home and had a headache and didn't really think anything of it, took some Advil and went downstairs. And, and then as I was uh, sitting there, I, I decided to pull up my, my phone and, and look up stroke and headache for some reason, because that's what we do when we're in healthcare. You know, if you have your, if your ankle hurts, you think you're having, you know, a broken ankle or something. So I looked this up and, and, you know, WebMD comes up, I start looking at it, and I'm like, wow, uh, I, I don't know any of these words. I, I must really be slipping. And then I realized I couldn't read, oh, uh, which immediately told me that's not good. Um, so I came upstairs, got my wife, uh, told her something was wrong, did a quick test with a, a news article to see if I actually couldn't read. And it literally looked like one of those seek and find uh, word puzzles where you just see all letters. That's I'm looking at an article, and that's all I see. Wow. So went to the local hospital got scanned and sure enough I had a pretty large uh, brain bleed which they couldn't tell where it was coming from but so long story short after uh, I, I was fine they said that the blood stopped well I wasn't fine but <laughs> the blood had stopped bleeding ended up going um, and, and getting more scans and after three months of the blood finally dissipating they were able to figure out what it was and I had what's called an arterial venous malformation which is typically caused by either trauma, which I didn't have, or it's a, um, a congenital defect. So it's a, an artery and a vein that are connected that shouldn't be. So blood's coming from the fresh blood in your in your artery that has a lot of oxygen and dumping into a vein. And what happens is when your blood pressure spikes uh, and goes up for some reason, because our blood pressure is always going up and down, this went up and then all of a sudden, you know, it was almost like uh, your, your, drain, your drain in your sink starts to, overflow because the, the, there's too much water right you know if you, if you look out on the street when it's pouring during a hurricane or like we just had or whatever and the, and the drains can't handle it that's what happens and the blood just runs everywhere into your head God. so mine fortunately stayed in one area um so it only affected a, a couple small pieces i couldn't spell worth anything um i couldn't read that was for for sure and i heard had a hard time coming up with word choices of trying to describe things so got through that, ultimately ended up having to have surgery to have that fixed, um, got that fixed, had to have a craniotomy, which is not a fun thing to have, um, <laughs> and once that was repaired, um, I, I was fortunate, it was successful surgery, got through all that, and then on, uh, I guess it was about a year after that, yeah, about a, a little less than a year after the surgery, I was driving home from uh, teaching and ended up having a seizure uh, about a mile from my house, Jeez. 
while driving, which is not a good thing. I don't no. advise anyone to do that. <laughs> um, it was literally a block from my house. I only remember about, I was sitting in a traffic light, and I had texted my son and said, I'll be home in five minutes, we'll go to the gym. And then I woke up on the back of an ambulance um, looking at a paramedic going, huh, what's going on here? And How'd I get here? here I, I got to literally down the street from my house and must have had a seizure right then, drove around the corner house uh, of, of our development here and sideswiped the car in the driveway but missed the house completely, went all the way around to the backyard, stopped there. Another neighbor, another neighbor saw me sitting there, started to approach me, saw me bolt up and then floored again, went all the way around the house back to where I started and drew full speed into a tree. Jeez. So I broke my back and that, don't advise that either. It was only a 20% fracture, which is fairly minor. You don't need surgery, but it hurts worse than anything I've ever had in my life. Well, yeah. um, so that kept me out of action for six months. So I didn't work um, for all of uh, 20, most of 2019. So this is a long answer to your question, which is how has COVID <laughs> really reacted or and, and uh, affected our profession. But when COVID hit, I hadn't worked since last, uh, I guess, March. Um, and when it hit earlier this year, uh, a position came up at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital that I thought I could help with. It was a virtual position where I, we, we work in a center where we have uh, every ICU in the, in the University of Pennsylvania system has a camera in the room where you can zoom in and it's high definition cameras. So we could actually go in and look at the ventilators without a therapist having to go in the room. Cover which more, I thought was very cool. Yeah, you can cover um, more patients. So, that yeah, it's, it, it keeps uh, the number of therapists having to go in and out of the room, cut, cut that way down. If there's somebody already in there, like a nurse that, that's doing something else, and I was seeing a problem with the ventilator, I could talk the nurse through how to, to fix the problem. If we had to adjust the settings or something like that, we could do that all remotely without having someone else having to go in the room and put them at risk. Tried doing that 30 so years ago. That, what's that? Tried doing that 30 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was, it's very cool. I still do it now. Um, but when COVID hit it and, you know, the people up in the Northeast part of the country got hit first, obviously, and us included. Uh, we had, I think at one point, 75 patients on the ventilators that were all COVID positive. Wow. Um, which is just a ridiculous number. Uh, on a normal day with just without COVID, we probably had 70 patients on ventilators. But these were all patients that just had COVID, regardless of the heart attacks and uh, surgeries and all that other stuff. So you can imagine what the, the overflow would be. Um, and this was happening all across the Northeast. And oh, yeah. New York, obviously, is the, the epicenter of it and, and the worst that got hit. And now since that time, a few months later, we locally see Texas and Florida and California. And what I think people don't understand, and, and this is where respiratory therapy really suddenly we actually heard – what a respiratory therapist was on the evening news. They said, we're running out of you know, doctors, nurses, and respiratory therapists. And I haven't heard that in 30 years. You know, Most people <laughs> don't even know what a respiratory therapist is. So in a weird way, it's been really good for our profession because it showcases what our value is. Um, on the downside, it's, it's a, you know, a respiratory condition, which obviously is not something you want to have because it's so easily spread. So it's, it's had a dramatic effect on our profession. Um, the, the most interesting thing for me is I started not only working virtually in, in that, uh, that one center, but I had to do orientation in the hospital itself. So I was in the ICUs at the heart of COVID, um, you know, learning the hospital system and their computer system, that kind of stuff. And it was amazing to watch um, the therapists work and, and see them actually using their knowledge uh, nonstop, working side by side with the docs, literally saving people's lives. Yeah. Uh, so that that's kind of a, a really cool thing to have happen. And when I when I came home from work the first first day, my wife was like, "How was it?" And I said, "In a weird way, it was fun." And she looked at me <laughs> like I was odd. I said, "No, it was scary as hell because you you deal with all this virus that's in there and and the, the fear that you have in that. But we 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 actually could do some good for people. And and that's you know if you go into a healthcare profession, that's your number one thing, hopefully. So it was really nice for me to go from not working clinically at all to suddenly using my brain on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, so that, that's really been a, a big, big di a difference from what I've seen. Yeah. Going in, going into EMS is being somebody that's in the emergency medical aspect of it. You know, it, it's hard to explain to people why you do what you do 
and putting because things, we're crazy. <laughs> putting things <laughs> into context, I mean, we our our mechanisms, at least speaking for me and, and friends that I have in, in EMS in general, um, you know, our our sense of humor is a little, we'll call it warped. It, um, oh no, it's definitely warped. We know, all the, have warped. <laughs> <laughs> the conversations that you have and, and the way that things are put into context that if people didn't outside outsiders would uh, kind of give you that really strange look. Like how can you be talking about what you're talking about over a plate of spaghetti? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, so it sounds like COVID kind of doubled the need that you guys normally would have. Yeah, it's, it's kind of scary. Cause, and, and this, this is something in, in, um, one of my actual full-time job for the last 10 years now has been working as the uh, executive director for the state association, professional association for respiratory care. And so I, I have a kind of a, a full view of what's going on in the state. And one of the things that I did before COVID really hit back in January and February, you know, back when it was just a, oh, it's just a little thing that, you know, we don't have to worry about. Um, I had done a quick survey of our schools to kind of get an idea, there's 21 uh, schools in, in Pennsylvania, or 22, I think, that uh, offer respiratory care as, as a program that you can take, you know, courses in. And I surveyed all the program directors to find out how many, you know, what their uh, attendance was, how, how many versus what was the maximum amount. And what I found out was, on average, the schools in this state are only 50% full for respiratory care which is kind of scary when you now go look ahead and go, okay, now we're four months later, five months later, or maybe even longer than that, six months later now, <laughs> and we look and we see what's happened, the, the dramatic need we have for respiratory therapists, you know, not just because of this virus, but how many people have put into retirement, you know, that said, you know what, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. Um, and a dramatic drop in schools because, you know, a lot of kids aren't going to, to college or taking a year off because they're so unsure of things there's going to be a dramatic drop in the number of therapists that are coming out graduating. And I right. think that's going to be true in nursing and, and every other, you know, health profession. So this, the scary part for me was to look at that number and say, my God, we have 250 graduates this year in 2020. Um, you know, not all of them could get done in May because of the different problems with the schools. And then when I looked at it a little bit further, there were just in our state a certain number of students who were going to work out of state and we have uh, 50 or so uh, students that were in programs that are from out of the country. So they're not staying here. Right. So when you take those numbers out, we're going to have a pretty big job shortage, or not job shortage, manpower shortage, <laughs> um, <laughs> over the next couple of years. So that's that's kind of a scary thing uh, looking at it. So for me, it was getting back into, into clinical was, was a, a good thing in a number of ways because I could see what was going on. But it's also because I teach, um, it, I can now – talk to those students and say, you have no idea your value <laughs> and how important you're going to be in the, in the next couple of years. Yeah. And I think it seems like everybody across the board for the most part is going to have that one year delay for, for a lot of things. Um, you know, especially in the medical field, uh, a lot of people I think may have been turned away from it because of what they didn't realize is medicine and human body is a very complex organism and, to take care of it and rehab it and fix it. There, there's a lot that goes into that, that I don't think people realize. And well, and, and when you, when you hear them, people say that, you know, first line, you know, frontline, um, people are, are heroes. It, it really is. And, and EMS, it, you know, I include that absolutely because, you know, you guys get to these patients before we do, you know, you see the worst of the worst of the worst, you know, usually the patients are cleaned up a little bit by the time they get to the ER by EMS. Packaged. <laughs> um, and, and you have to deal with all the other stuff that's going on outside, you know, the, the family members, the, the situation, the car wreck, whatever it is that you're, that you're pulling up to. Half the time you don't even know what you're pulling up to until you get there. Um, and, and people don't realize it takes a special kind of person to do that. You know, if you think back to 9-11 when that, when that happened, you know, 95% of the people were running away from the buildings collapsing. And they don't know where that 5% police, the firemen, the EMS, and that were running towards it. And that's why they're heroes. I mean, it's, it really is. You have to, to have that ability to do that. You have to be willing to say, I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. And not everybody's cut out for that. And, and 
that's okay. You know, that, but we do need more people that'll that'll do that because if they don't do it, who's going to? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a dramatic change. I, I started as a volunteer when I was 15, and I continue to do it to this day. So I've got almost 30 years of riding on an ambulance, and I've seen kind of the ebb and flow. I've seen people come and go. I've seen the, the changes, and it is – I used to not think it was a big deal, but as you pointed out, there there's a certain mindset you have to have to be able to walk into, you know, essentially our chaos – and be calm and be able to triage things and be decisive with your actions and not do any harm. Right. And, and not freak out and not lose your mind. And, and, you know, it, it, it's almost, I don't know what it is for you, but for me, it, it's, you know, if I go into a code situation, you know, or a patient suddenly goes into a code or, or I walk into the ER and, you know, it's a gunshot wound where somebody got literally blasted with a shotgun or whatever you you need to almost be able to step back you know in your mind and separate yourself from the the emotional reaction you have to it because your your human side of you and the emotion is oh my god and you just freeze and you can't you don't even want to touch it or go near it or do that you almost have to step out of that and just put that aside and say i got a job to do and go do it yeah and Regardless of what blood or what other things come out of the body or whatever's going on, you deal with it. And it's a remarkable thing when you watch people work together that are all doing that and they're all having the same goal. Yeah. You know, and, and that's that's kind of the cool thing that, that I think, you know, at the end, especially if it's a successful outcome, it, it's almost a high that you get. It's almost like a football player that scores a touchdown. You work so hard and when you finally get it, it's a, you know, and for us it's the same thing. When you save somebody's life or – you know, whatever it is that, that you succeed with, it's a big high. Now, unlike a football player, it's a much bigger low if you're not successful. Um, you know, but e- even that, you have to kind of learn how to separate yourself so you don't take it home with you. Um, early on in my career, it affected me more now. I, I guess I'm maybe a little more jaded. I'm sure you are as well. <laughs> uh, things don't bother you as much as they used to. Yeah, is that I, true? I, I can definitely, uh, definitely agree to that. It's Like you said, it's a matter of compartmentalizing and yeah, that's the word, compartmentalizing, yep. Yeah, like you said, you have to be able to walk in and, and put aside your normal instinct to either flee or or panic or, or react in some adverse way. Push all that aside and, and get do what has to be done. And you know, like yourself, I, I teach. I was teaching at a police academy for a number of years um, for the first responder block for the recruits because of my EMS experience. Um, I was also a police officer at the time, so... I've been in my in situations where I, like you pointed out, I've I've seen the worst of the worst in, in so many different capacities, and you know some of the the stories that I have were, you know, typical question when people find out that I'm an EMT. It's like, oh, well, what's the worst thing you've seen? And <laughs> a lot of people don't like that question, and I'm one. I might be one of the few people. It, it doesn't bother me because my typical response is, if I tell you the worst thing I've experienced, you might never recover from it mentally. So I kind of keep that one to myself. Um, but yeah, it's it's all about perspective. And I've been fortunate in both my law enforcement and my EMS career to, to work with people that can literally walk into that horrific, you know, the most horrific scene you can think of and walk in with a sense of calm and start just barking out orders that are just so correct for the time and, and decisive. You yeah, know you that to, you're you going to listen. Be able to think on your feet and... And deal with, I mean, work at a stress. It's almost like you're in a combat zone. It really is. Uh, I mean, I'm, I've not been a soldier, but it just just seeing and, and knowing what they go through, it, you, you almost have to be trained that way. You have to be able to, to think on your feet, react, and make the right decision, you know, because lives are at stake or Absolutely. life is at stake, whatever. You know, so it's, it's um, and that requires training and it requires experience. It, it really does. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I've noticed, and you kind of mentioned it before, um, with some of the new boards that are, have come out recently, you have to have X amount of experience before you can advance. I think the one thing that I, I would like to see naturally be done is with paramedics, and this again, this is kind of my own little personal bias that I've developed. There's a lot of paramedics who never, we'll call it worked as an EMT basic or as a, the entry-level EMT. And they went right in and got their paramedic license, which is now, you know, the upside is it's now a two-year degree. So you're getting an associate's degree for it. 
but they've never really learned what it is to do the job before being put in a elevated position. And they're they're pretty important, especially on cardiac arrests. They're the ones that push the drugs. They're the one to innovate. You know, they know how to read the heart uh, monitors and, and all that stuff. With as an EMT, I just stick to my basics: airway, breathing, and circulation, and make sure you're breathing and you're not bleeding. <laughs> Well, and, and you're dealing with you're dealing with with some different things as EMT. You're 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 not just focused on on the books, what I'll call the book smart stuff. It it is really more about the dealing with and, and keeping it basic, keeping it simple, and and reacting. Um, and I I think you, you can't skip that. You know, when I when I teach my students now, you know, uh, one of the other things that COVID has shown me, and and it's it's, a, it's a kind of a personal thing that I laugh about, but. For years, I, when I teach, I teach mechanical ventilation as one of my main courses. And I teach it the way I believe it needs to be taught. It's, most students come in and they, they just want to know, just show me what buttons I have to push. And they don't want to understand how it works behind the scenes. And, right. and I'm, I'm all about, no, you need to understand why it works behind the scenes. Because while you know, that information is not really helpful 95% of the time, what happens when the 5% comes along and you don't know it? There's nobody else in the hospital that knows mechanical ventilator better than a respiratory therapist. Right. So if you don't know it, guess what? The patient's <laughs> out of luck, and, and no one's going to catch it. So during COVID, I saw stuff that I've been teaching for years that, was, that, that went from hardly ever being used to being used on every single patient all the time. And if you didn't know it, that patient was in trouble. So I, I felt this vindication come, come <laughs> sweeping across, and I sat there and I said, okay, now I feel better when I'm teaching this. I'm going to say, no, I can tell you for sure you need to know this, and right. here's why. And I think that will have a, a good effect on the students because you know, I'll be able to give them not, not stuff from 20 years ago that I can point out to, but something that's happened three months ago. And it's more know, than in anecdotal. ICU. Absolutely. Yeah, I... Absolutely. And, and you're, I'm sure you have the same experience where – you know, you might not see this situation for 25 years, but when it happens, you need to be ready. Yeah, there's, there's, I, I like to see the balance between book smart and street smart EMTs. And I've seen yep. people go into the EMT class and they can recite the book cover to cover. You know, it's, it's a pretty thick book. It's always gotten thicker. Uh, and I've seen people that, you know, they struggled in class, myself included, and I was never a good test taker, but they excelled in a field. Out on the street. Yep. Because they were compassionate, they understood the, the basics that they needed to do, and they were able to think on their feet. Whereas the people that were insanely book smart, they seemed a little delayed in their course of action, just making that decision. It's like, well, the book says this, but it's not fitting exactly to the context of the book, so I don't know what to do. Meanwhile, the street but he's like, um, fix it. Just fix it. <laughs> so. What you're describing, I think, is in every healthcare profession. In fact, it's in most professions in general, but it, it stands out in healthcare professions because I've seen the exact same thing. We have students who, who have just been outstanding. I mean, can, can ace exams. And then you put them in a clinical environment and they can't put, you know, a, a, a round peg into a round hole. You, you would think that that would be really simple, but they can't do that. It's, it's, it's like, okay, um, this, this doesn't connect. And then we have students like you just described as yourself who maybe not are just barely pass. Literally, they, they pass with the lowest possible grade they can pass. <laughs> yeah. And then you go out, and I see them a year, two years later out in a hospital, and they are just fantastic. You know, so, some, of the, some of my best students, or some of my worst students, I should say, from an academic standpoint, have turned out to be some of the best clinicians and are just, they, they just have it all together. And eventually they catch up with the educational piece of it, you know, they, they learn, it takes them longer to learn. So after three, four, five years, that information that maybe they didn't quite get the first couple times in school starts to sink in. Yeah. And, but they, but they had that, like you said, they care and, and, and the compassion that's in there along with their ability to do hands-on stuff kept them afloat until they were able to catch up. And it, you know, at the end of the day, they turn out to be exceptional. So, you know, where I, it's, I see that happen more often than I see, the really, really smart people who can't really do it well clinically. Yeah. Typically, if you're not really good on your feet and you can't deal with things clinically, you don't get better at that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's being good with your hands is one thing. Being good with a book is another. And I, I tend to agree that the people that are typically really book smart, they I think they overanalyze things. And when it doesn't yes. meet the exact context that they that it's presented to them in a book, 
they have a real hard time with adjusting that to reality. Uh, I've, I've had that. I've had that in, in recent years. I've had students that were, they, they just couldn't understand. They're like, well, but that's not what you taught us. I'm like, well, guess what? <laughs> I can't teach you every situation that's going to come up. You have right. to be able to adjust. Things aren't straightforward. It's, you know, Some things are, but most things, especially in the human body, are never the same. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they change, and, and from person to person, they're different. Right. So you have to be able to adjust that knowledge and, and kind of flex with it, you know, and, and understand why it's flexing and, and how to deal with it. So it's interesting from, from that perspective, because I, I do think you're right. I think you're going to see that in, in most professions, and it's interesting to hear your experiences matching up pretty much with what I've seen in, in completely different fields, although related by healthcare. Yeah, I think what the, the big concern with the COVID is the, the unknown of what the long-term effects are going to be. And, and from what I'm hearing is a lot of it, you know, it does some pretty significant damage to the lungs and the lung tissue. So that's definitely should be, it sounds like it's going to be opening up a door for the need. for. I, I've never this. seen in, in 30 years, I've never seen anything like this. And, and again, you're, you're out around the same amount of time and in the hospital setting and, and in my profession, there's never been anything like this. And I've been through, four or five pandemics, obviously this is the worst, but whether it's H1N1 or, you know, pig flu, the bird flu, whatever, the, whatever other animal flu we've had <laughs> that has come through, this has been like nothing we've seen. And, and you know, I, I get that people are frustrated and I'm frustrated as well because we're told one thing and then it seems like the next day we're told, oh no, that's not true, it's this. And I think people have to understand, and I'm always telling people, it's a novel virus, which means we don't know what it is. We're literally learning by experience. And you know, I think human nature is I want to know all the answers right now and, and what I'm supposed to do, and it, it just doesn't work that way. So yeah. the, I, the interesting thing is when it first came out, we thought this was a lung a lung disease. It's not. It's a vascular disease. Um, there there was a patient, and, and this was uh, earlier this year, where the, the patient actually was on a ventilator, got off the ventilator, was doing okay, and then suddenly had a stroke. Which, which made no sense. We're like, wait a minute, wait, they, they, they have COVID. You know, we got them off the vent. Their lungs are doing better. Well, it's attacking all areas of the body, but it's really attacking vascular systems, including vascular system in your, in your lungs. So that's why you see, you're starting to hear stories now and, and seeing case studies on patients who they didn't even know they had the virus. They're, they're one of the asymptomatic ones, but they're starting to do studies on their people and they're finding they have heart damage. Really? Yeah. That's and a, it's like, well, wait a minute, I, I wasn't even sick. Well, you were sick. You just didn't feel it. And now you've got, you know, this, this heart condition that you didn't have before. Yeah. And these, these are younger people, too. It's not just, you know, that was the other misnomer that, that initially came out because it really hit our nursing homes and our older population um, hard, especially in the Northeast. And that's why all the deaths and that kind of thing. And then, you know, a lot of political stuff came out about, you know, <laughs> oh, it doesn't affect Kids, yes, it affects kids. You look at the science, it definitely affects kids, but they're not seeing in hospitals as all. Well, right. Right? Because they're, they're just like the regular flu. You know, if, if, if you and I get the flu, hopefully we're not in the hospital by it. But someone who's 65, 70, much more unlikely that they're going to end up with pneumonia in the hospital. Um, whereas a kid, they're going to be home in bed for a couple of days and then they bounce right back and they're fine. Right. So right. I, I don't think that's acting any differently. It's just, the way this hit and, the, and how quickly it hit is, is you know, and, and the numbers of uh, nursing homes that, and those patients that were dying really skewed the numbers to show that it was, it looked like, quote, an old person's disease, but it's not. Right. So you're, you're right. This, this, we won't know about this, you know, I, and again, you said we're a little bit macabre in, in the way we think and we're different. I'll, I'll talk to some of my friends as a therapist and I'll say, you know what, you and I will long be out of this field and probably dead and they'll still be talking about this virus yeah. and they'll still be learning things about it because that's how complex it is uh, and, and, and things that are changing and, you know, we're living through it. it it's it's an uh, interesting time. I, the first couple weeks in the hospital, I every day I would come in and the, the policies and protocols were changing literally every day. You know, this is how we're doing this now. Okay. And then the next day I'd come in. Oh, I thought we were doing it. No, it's changed. It's this now. <laughs> when did that happen? This morning. Well, why? Well, the CDC just came out and said this, and they just found it. So now we're changing everything we're doing. It's like, oh, my God. And you literally couldn't keep up with it. So, you know, the, the public is saying, oh, well, I, I can't keep straight, you know, what they're telling me. You Try going into a hospital. <laughs> <You> <laughs> exactly. <need good> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I'm guessing that's kind of calmed down to a degree, hopefully a lot. Uh, yes, but I don't think that's because we're – well, part of it is because we've learned more. Right. Um, a lot of it is because we're not seeing as many patients right now in Pennsylvania in particular. We're one of the best states right now. If you were to go into uh, Houston or you know Florida and, and some of these major hit cities, they're going through what we went through. They're right. they're just struggling, and and you're seeing the death rates start to go up. The hospitalizations are through the roof. Um, they are benefiting from what we learned, you know, putting patients in a prone position where they lay on their stomach. You know, we learned that pretty early. Not from here in the U.S. We learned that from Italy because they were the first ones that figured out, hey, if we prone patients, they, their oxygenation is going to get better. Really? So. Yeah, and we've known about proning for years. We've never really used it for anything because the studies have been kind of, okay, so the oxidation improves, but it didn't improve outcomes. The mortality or the death rate of patients wasn't really improved in a lot of the conditions we would have um, or diseases we would have that, that caused low oxygen. But this one, we found it immediately that literally we, we had patients. I would walk through the, the ER, and I would see patients who were not on a ventilator that they were telling to lay on their stomach because they were trying to keep the patient's oxygen level high enough so they didn't have to go on the ventilator. They weren't concerned um, with positional asphyxiation like that? No, no, not really. It, 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 pruning a person does create a problem, <laughs> um, especially if they're on a ventilator because of you've got all these tubes and everything and you have pressure sores. And the research that we have on pruning, and there's a pretty good amount, says that you, know, you really have to prune a patient for 12 to 16 hours um, of the day. So that that's really difficult to care for a patient when they're laying flat on their face, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, and you can imagine the pressure sores on the face and on the, the stomach and the chest. So you, you've got to be really careful and, and weigh the pros and cons of that. But when this hit really hard, it was our number one defense oh. was put patients in a prone position. And, I mean, it's, it's literally saved people's lives because, you know, um, the, the, one of the, the things I tell students the first time they meet me when they come into the respiratory care program is, and, and this is before I, I teach them one thing about anything, whether it's pharmacology, mechanical ventilation, I said, here's something you need to know before you get into any of your classes. When you go into healthcare, doesn't matter what profession, we don't um, fix people. And they look at me and they're like, what? I'm like, you don't really fix people. A surgeon can fix people. Antibiotics can fix people. That can cure, you know, some viruses and, and things like that, or bacteria, I should say, not viruses. Um, but other than that, it's between surgery and medication, that's the only thing that fix people. Everything else is supportive care. So when you think about it, whether it's a doctor, nurse, therapist, what are we doing? We're keeping people alive until something happens. Either they get better because their body heals itself, or they die. And it, it seems like such a, and the students always look at me like, you're nuts. I, I'm in a classroom with a nuts guy. And I'm like, it's the truth. I said, think about it. I said, all we can do is every, and what you're going to learn for the next two years while you're in this program is to come up with every trick possible to keep the person alive as long as they can to give them the best chance of surviving and recovering. But sometimes no matter what you do, you could use every trick there is in the book and the person's still going to die. Yeah. Uh, Other times, it might be the very last trick you could possibly think of that might keep them alive for two more hours, and then the body's defenses kick in, and then, boom, they turn around. And a week later, they're off the ventilator, and they're going home. Yeah, it's more so about it, managing care and managing the patient, managing the it, medications it and things. Absolutely. I mean, medications are a wonderful thing, but a lot of them don't do what we want them to do, you know, and some of them obviously do, and, and that kind of thing, but... Even like blood pressure medications, which you have a lot of experience with, I'm sure, when you're, when you're on the, the rigs, <laughs> you know, what does it do? Okay, well, we give fluids or we give blood pressure to raise a patient's blood pressure, but that doesn't necessarily fix the underlying problem, right? It, it, it gives a false sense of security. It's almost putting a Band-Aid on it until, you know, let's say a person has a gunshot wound or a stab wound and they're bleeding like crazy, right? And they lose a lot of blood, so their blood pressure is going to drop. So what do we do? We give fluids or we give... Um, blood pressure medication to try to keep their blood pressure up, otherwise they die. Well, if you don't fix that stab wound and keep the bleeding from stopping, they're <laughs> going to die. Eventually, going to run out of fluid. Yeah, <laughs> right. So that, that that's kind of a, a simplified example, but but that's really what it is. So it's, it's interesting because there's so many things like that. But I, I always, years ago I simplified it down and said, 
I'm not curing anything in, in my profession. I'm trying to give the person the best chance of staying alive that, that, and living you know, to see another day. Yeah, like you said, with the, you can do everything right sometimes and still not have a positive outcome. Yep. And, and that's kind of something that I've, I've told people that I've trained as in, in EMS that you know, as long as you can walk away and look back and go, I did everything I possibly could have, you can't take it too hard if it doesn't have a positive outcome because if you start carrying it with you you're just going to get bogged down and you're going to be in a very very bad place so you've got to be able to like you said earlier separate yourself and and as long as you can walk away like i said knowing and feeling that you did everything you possibly could have that's kind of where you put that little checkbox and and move on yeah it's 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 a very it's a very odd place to go into you you really do have to go into this almost other world type setup where you're you, you can't sit there and, and the, the patient you're teaching, you can't say, well, that, that could be my grandmom. You know, you can't picture that person as your grandmom. Or for me, the hardest thing is after we started having kids, every time I would treat a pediatric patient, I would put myself in that parent's position. And, you know, it's, and I've had some cases that were really bad, you know, um, both where the, the, the child didn't survive or the, the parent didn't survive. And then one parent's left with, you know, these kids and, and there are now a, you know, a single parent, and they have to explain to their kids what happened to mommy or daddy, and that probably are the were the worst things that I had to deal with. That those hit me the hardest, yeah. and I would come home and I'd be like, "Oh man," you know, it's it's hard to shake that off, and especially earlier in your career. Again, regardless of what career you go into, if it's medicine, you you got to get past that point because, like you said, it, it'll you'll go into a really dark place if you take it home with you every time. Yeah, I mean, I've I I, I agree with that that things that I've experienced, the, the people that I've treated, both complete strangers and, and people that I've were was friends with for a long time. Um, there are definitely times that are harder to deal with and take a little longer to get by than others. But like, a, you know, you got to find the, the bright spot in, in everything. Yeah. And, and, and you said it best. You, you do everything you can. You, you can't, you know, I, I remember telling, uh, there was a time where I worked at a hospital, this was years ago, and everyone called out, and I was the only one on. And we couldn't get anybody to come in. They, they couldn't get a hold of people, and, and it literally was me. And I ran around the hospital, you know, a 250-bed hospital, and I'm running around Jeez. doing as many as I could. And it got to the point where, you know, someone would call and say, I need you here. And I'm like, look, I've got two hands and two feet. I can only deal with one emergency at a time, so you're going to have to deal with it until I get there. You know, and you're not I, I was at a point in my career where I could do that, but early on, I would I would have just I would have froze up. I wouldn't have known what to do because I would have been overwhelmed by the moment where you just feel helpless, and you know you, you've got to get to that point where you say I can only do so much, and, right. and as long as at the end of the day you can say you gave your best effort. I don't think anybody can ask anything more of themselves or, or of anybody else for that matter. Yeah, and in some circumstances, I'm guessing maybe nowadays you would have somebody that could triage the, the your need sure. around the hospital and say, all right, well, this one just came in. It's a little more critical. Go here instead of there. And, but, yeah, I, can, I, I have an idea what it's like to need 10 hands and only have two. Yeah, and and you know what? Most things, and, and you know, people think, you know, well, we have to have a doctor – to, to do this well no you don't you know you, you don't always have to have a doctor you can keep the patient alive until a doctor can get there but and and COVID has really shown this i mean there, there have been hospitals across the country where they have such a physician shortage that what do you do there's one doc covering three different icus you know nurses and and, and therapists are going to have to make some decisions and do the best they can because the doc can't be seven places at once there there have been cases in fact one of the things that I, I saw in my first few weeks during when COVID hit, we would have five or six patients go into cardiac arrest within 20 minutes of each other. I, I've never seen anything like it because you, you, they call it overhead and, and you're just like, what, another one? And you, know, you can only run so many places. Right. So my, my take on it has always been, you know, from a respiratory therapist standpoint, one of the biggest things we do is we you know, manually ventilate the patient until a, a tube can be put in. Now, we're trained as respiratory therapists to put tubes in, but typically most hospitals have docs doing it. 
Well, guess what? If there's not a dock available, I'm putting the tube in. Right. You know, that that's that's something it, – it's not normally something I do, but it's something I'm trained for. So, you know, you, you're starting to see now a lot of uh, nurses and nurse practitioners and nurse anesthetists. Um, hospitals are, are training them to deal with mechanical ventilation. Now, they're not – obviously, in a, in a, uh, a, a week – course where they're where they're going with us following us around they're not going to learn all the ins and outs of mechanical ventilation but right. we certainly can teach them enough to help us when i've got 17 patients on the ventilator and i can't be in 17 rooms so if they can help you know lighten the load by going doing some of the things that's what needs to be done so that there are some good things from COVID, and, and that's the kind of thing i i think that kind of falls by the wayside people don't notice it but there are some things that that, that will come out of this that are good absolutely i mean i think it might change how oversight for both EMS for us and and like you were pointing out with nurses and things like that to expand their their scope of training and, and what they're capable of doing on standing orders um, you know my experience in working at cardiac arrest or code is I'm sure probably very different than yours um, but it, 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 it's not that it's any better or worse it's just different you have some things that are a little you're in a probably a better environment than, you know, having, you know, family members and, and people like that behind you while you're trying to get this person's heart going again. But it's, it's still, the end game is, is still the same. We're trying to, to revive that person. So, I think it's going to speed some things up that, that were probably happening already anyway, just very, very slow pace. And I'll give you an example, you know, 30 years ago when you started, um, and, and you had a patient that, that was having poor oxygen levels, Probably the only thing that you could do was put them on a non-rebreather mask. Uh, at that time, there really weren't any ventilators in an ambulance. There, there weren't, and there was nothing. It was just oxygen, and you either had to manually ventilate the patient with a bag mask, or put them on just on high oxygen and get them to the hospital as fast as you could. Right now, there are paramedics that rigs that run with a ventilator. Now, there are very basic ventilators, um, and and more importantly, there are CPAP and BiPAP, which are devices that you know you put a mask on and. and not quite manual, uh, full mechanical ventilation. You don't have to intubate or put a tube in the patient, but you can help improve oxygenation. And again, I, I don't think a paramedic out there is going to is going to say they know more than a respiratory therapist about ventilation or, or BiPAP. But they certainly can put these patients on. And I've seen big time changes. Patients come in on on a you know, CPAP machine, and it probably kept them from coding or, or being intubated and put on a ventilator. Yeah, because I, they, the paramedics were able to do that. So that, that training is now kind of starting to slide over. And, and I, I think you're going to see, like you kind of said, you're going to see more people trained in more areas. You're going to see therapists who are doing IV lines. And, you know, at a, at a hospital I worked at, we put arterial lines in, which is typically a physician thing. But at the hospital where I worked, respiratory therapies did that. You know, um, the more people that can do more things, the better. Right. Uh, there, there's a limit, obviously, because there's only so much that you can kind of jam in in that training time. <laughs> yeah. But I think that that's a, a positive that you'll see. Um, and I, I think overall we'll be more prepared when the next thing comes along, whether that's a pandemic or a biological attack or a tornado or, you know, whatever it is that, that hits another hurricane. Hopefully we learn each time from them and, and we're better prepared. I, I, I think, for, at least from the medical side, we'll be much more prepared the next time uh, something like this comes through. Agreed. Because you can kind of fall back on what worked and, and see what didn't work as well. And in touching with you know, CPAP, I've seen that in a, probably like the last 10 years or so. Um, it's becoming more and more prevalent uh, in treating especially congestive heart failure patients. And the ability to, to keep that fluid kind of compressed down, down in yep. the lungs, allowing yep. that person to get a little bit of use of their lung surface, it, it makes truly makes all the difference in the world for them. Well, and it tells you how old we are because 30 years ago when I got in the field, CPAP barely existed. Uh, we, we didn't use it on anybody. Um, you know, virtually it was really used in, in sleep labs for people with sleep apnea, and that was about it. We didn't use it as a rescue, and you couldn't even get a CPAP mask with a full face mask. It would only be over their nose, which is kind of useless when you're yeah. trying to help push air in. <laughs> and then I remember it wasn't too many years after I had started uh, I worked at uh, Montgomery Hospital, which just doesn't even exist anymore. And I remember getting called down to, to the ER because we had just gotten in one of these first full face masks. And it looked ridiculous when you put it on, but it worked. And 
nobody in the state really wanted to use it, but there, we had a cardiologist who had a patient come in that was in congestive heart failure, and he called me down. He said, I know you don't have the ER, but I want you to put this patient on, you know, something that's going to get them. I don't want to have to put them on a ventilator. I said, well, we could try a CPAP mask, <laughs> and he's like, what's that? I said, well, we just got, he said, do whatever you need to do. <laughs> so went and got it, put it on the patient. It works beautifully. Nice. Now, I look back at that, and I kind of laugh because no one was doing that, you know, and, and it, it was kind of being put out there as a possible thing. And now you, you fast forward, I guess, 25 years since that time, and now everybody's on CPAP, and everybody's yeah. on, you know, it's, it's really amazing how much has changed, you know, uh, and how much we learn. And, and we think we're so smart, and I tell, you know, graduates this too. I said, everything we've taught you is right now. Yeah. 15 years from now, you're going to look back and you're going to go, we didn't know anything. You know, when we first started, um, when I first started in the field, we would put a patient on the ventilator. We would put the amount of air that goes in the lung, we would set that at 1.2 liters. So between a liter and two and 1.2 liters, which is a pretty big amount of air. And we thought that that was best practice. And at the time it was. And then over the, you know, the next 10, 15 years up until the early 2000s and 2010, when they did more studies on it, they realized that it's way too much air and we were putting double the amount of air into patients' lungs that we should be. And we were actually causing little micro damage to, to the alveoli in the lungs and causing more problems than we were solving. And, and now the way we set things up on a ventilator is so different than it was 30 years ago. It's, it's almost, you know, criminal when you look at it. But we didn't know any better. You know, medicine hadn't gotten to that point. So that's going to continue to happen. You know, right. 30 years from now, everything else will be different again. Yeah. The, so. the biggest experience I have with dealing with overinflating lungs is gastric distension. And for anybody who doesn't know what that is, it's basically filling the stomach up with air. And once the stomach hits a certain capacity, it's got only one other place to go and that's out the mouth. So trying to do CPR on somebody when when not keeping an eye on the stomach is not a very wise thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And, and so when you, when you're uh, ventilating a patient with a, with a, uh, a manual resuscitator, right? We used to squeeze that bag and push as much air in as we can. Now, if you look at the, at the, uh, ACLS guidelines and, and even the AMA guidelines, you're not supposed to push a whole lot of air. You're supposed to actually just give a certain amount. So, Again, everything's changed. We used to breathe as fast as we could. And then we found out if you push too much air in, A, you have gastric dis distension problems, and B, you actually put too much pressure in the, in the chest, and it squeezes the heart. So when you're doing compressions, trying to pump all this blood, blood's not returning because we're pushing so much air in. So these are all things that are just kind of like, you sit back and you go, duh, how dumb were we? <laughs> well, it seems like common sense. I mean, hindsight, the best thing about hindsight is just twenty twenty. You, you right. always see the errors and how bad things were when you're looking in the past. It's sure sitting in the present and the, looking in the future. It's a vision's a little more skewed. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, I, I've had you for about an hour. Um, I want to thank you for coming on and, and uh, talking to me. It's definitely was enlightening and, and I appreciate your, uh, your candor and your, your expertise. I would love to have you on again. Maybe, in a few months and see how things have changed thanks to COVID. Um, if you have anything that you want to plug, maybe where you teach or something along those lines, any articles that you've published? So the, 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 the big thing I would say is, again, I mentioned it earlier, There's if anyone's interested in going into respiratory care, there's 20, I think there's 21 schools now, um, kind of scattered around the state. Uh, in the Philadelphia or southeastern Pennsylvania area, there's uh, three programs now, I believe. Uh, that are in, you know, immediate proximity. Uh, the one I teach at is at Gwinnett Mercy University. Um, it's a, a private college, and, you know, our numbers, for most of the programs, our numbers are really low. So if you're someone who wants to go to school but doesn't want to go in with a class of, you know, 75 people, um, any of the respiratory care programs, the, the average number of students in a classroom is probably somewhere between 10 and 20. Um, so you get a lot of, of uh kind of first person and, you know, teacher reaction. You're not one of 50 people. The teachers all know who you are. Um, so that that's a big thing. And and you can, you know, if you go to, there's a website called COARC. It's C-O-A-R-C. It's COARC.com. They actually are the accrediting body for all the schools. You can go on that website 
and take a look around, and they'll show you where the programs are, and they actually give you outcomes, you know, how well the schools do with, in terms of students' passing rate and that kind of thing. Um, that's, that's a good uh, place to go to. And if you're interested in Gwinnett, then it's uh, gmercyu.com that they can go to. Awesome. Again, thank you very much, and uh, I'll let you go. Have a good night. All right, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.